Wednesday edition of PFTPM. This is the one day per week that we are also live on Sky Sports NFL in the UK and in Ireland. So good evening to our friends over there. Late good afternoon to everyone in the United States watching the program on Peacock, although it's mid-afternoon if you're on the West Coast. Shereen Williams, somewhere in between the East Coast and the West Coast in Texas. Good afternoon to you. How's everything? Hi, Mike. Good for a Wednesday. Got a hump day and get ready for some football. Feels weird not to have a football game tonight or tomorrow night. Well, you know, Sims is inspired now by the Tuesday night football. He wants football every night yeah. of the week. And I, and I said to him, well, what about the XFL, realizing no one cares about spring football and playing on Tuesday and Wednesday nights? He's not interested in that. But I really do think that football season is the time for all brands of football. And last night's game shows that there is a market for football all week long. You're not going to have the same gigantic numbers that you would have on the prime nights, but it's football season. We want football every day, and as legalized betting spreads, people want things they can bet on, either to either to chase their losses or their wins from over the weekend when they bet on college and NFL games. All right, uh, if you were betting on the Jets cutting Le'Veon Bell going into the season, and I'm sure somewhere, somehow, there would have been a prop bet that you could make, the over-under on when the Jets would cut Le'Veon Bell. I thought they would trade him. They probably thought, the, uh, thought so too, Shireen. They tried. They failed. He's now officially out. You know, it's something that if you had told us before uh, or back in early 2019 when he signed with the Jets that it wouldn't last even a season and a half, we'd all been shocked if, if we had been informed that was going to happen. But here it is. He's out, and now he can go wherever he wants. It's crazy. And I guess at some point you just realize enough is enough and you move on. We've seen it with AB. And it's amazing these Steelers players all leave and and fail elsewhere. It tells you what a good job I think that Mike Tomlin did in Pittsburgh when he had both AB and Le'Veon Bell because they came became too much for their teams to handle. And in AB's case, multiple teams to handle. And they moved on. But it's going to be really interesting, I think, to see where Le'Veon lands you know we all thought when Earl Thomas got cut oh he's going to have all these opportunities and nothing I mean crickets now with Earl Thomas we almost forget he's out of the league so who's going to jump on the Le'Veon Bell train and and think he can help him that'll be interesting well and remember when Leonard Fournette was cut by the Jaguars we didn't know how long he would be available once it started to get out that the Patriots may have interest. And the fact that it got out means they never had interest because it never gets out when the Patriots are interested in someone. They just sign it because they tell everyone involved. If it gets out, we're out. Uh, once that got out, though, Fournette lands with the Buccaneers. And some people in the league think that Bell will end up with the Patriots. I don't know about that, but there are teams that could use him. I'm still surprised, Shereen, that they didn't squat on Le'Veon Bell in New York until the trade deadline because you've got week six, week seven, week eight. Running back suffers a serious injury at some point over the next three weeks. All of a sudden, there's a market for Le'Veon Bell when there wasn't one before. And it just tells me how bad it is or was between player and team. And also, with their Miami game shifted around and their bye week moved from week 11 to week 10 as part of the fallout of rescheduling the Broncos-Patriots game. Adam Gase now has four chances left to win a game before it's a done deal, if it isn't already, that he's out at Week 10. And uh, th- th- there there are some games coming up 
that that I think they could easily lose of the next four. I, don't, I think they could lose all of them. They, they should lose all of them. It's Dolphins. I think it's Chiefs, Bills, and uh, maybe Patriots before the bye. So to the extent that playing the game of keeping Le'Veon Bell around was going to create some sort of a distraction that would have made it harder to win, let's just cut the cord. Let's just move on. Who cares if we would get a seventh-round pick? Gase isn't going to be there to use it anyway if they don't win a game. So see you later, Le'Veon, and let's focus on the guys who want to be here. And, Mike, I think I've slowly come over to MDS's, Michael David Smith, our coworker. I've come over to his side that running backs are a dime a dozen. I mean, look at what's gone on in Carolina without Christian McCaffrey. They've done just fine without him. And it just seems like you can find running backs anywhere and plug them in, and there's some really good ones you can get late in the draft or you can get in free agency for cheap, or you can, whatever. I mean, they're all out there, and, and there's a ton of them. So to go pay a running back a lot of money, and I realize in Le'Veon's case, they're not even going to have to pay him a lot of money because the Jets don't owe him this money. But to pay a running back a second contract maybe just isn't worth it. Maybe that's what I, we're seeing here in some of these cases when you go look at Todd Gurley and you now look at Le'Veon Bell and, and some others we've seen. Ezekiel Elliott, frankly, hasn't living, lived up to his contract in the year in five games that he's been in that contract. There aren't many teams that are happy with the second contract that they've given to a running back. The Vikings and Adrian Peterson maybe the lone exception. That one still didn't run all the way through conclusion, unlike a quarterback contract would do. And the problem is you you create a superstar early in his career. The fans are going to be very upset. The people who buy the tickets aren't happy if the guy's not there anymore. That's why having multiple running backs is the best way to go because you never create that one guy that everybody buys the jersey and every kid wants to be him. And the end result is you get backed into a corner and you have to pay him when maybe your best play would be to let him walk away or finish his rookie contract, do the franchise tag one year, and then move on from the player. And that's what the Steelers did. Now the Steelers could move back in. You know, there are other teams that could be interested. Matt Nagy, the coach of the Bears, didn't rule it out earlier this afternoon. The coach of the Eagles, Doug Peterson, seemed to. But I think somebody will sign him at some point. And if not, he just waits. And you wait because at some point, some running back is going to get injured. We know that. And it's going to open the door for Le'Veon Bell. The door is now closed on Bell with the Jets. Here's Adam Gase, the head coach from earlier today, on the question of whether or not Bell was misused in the Jets' offense. Do you agree with the perception that you misused him? Uh, it's, it's irrelevant at this point. Yeah, but, I, you know, Adam, when a team makes a, a free agent – investment that large and it ends before two seasons I think the fans are interested in knowing why it didn't work out with a player of that stature yeah it didn't work out it didn't work out and we're gonna focus on this game right now now you know other coaches with more accomplishments on their resume would say that and nobody would say boo Adam Gase says it and the people out there who don't like him automatically start blaming him but you know what his it is irrelevant whether or not he was misused here's the problem and and I think Gase is trying to protect some people in this regard the problem is they never should have signed him for the money they signed him for their offense wasn't ready for a running back their offense wasn't a running back away from being a great 
attack. And you don't go out and add a great running back when you don't have an offensive line, when you don't have a quarterback who's at the point where you say, yeah, that's a potential franchise guy, and we don't have the receivers. It can't be a one-man show unless it's Barry Sanders. And Le'Veon Bell is not Barry Sanders where he can get 100 yards a game without any help around him like Sanders consistently did. You need more. And to pay $13.5 million a year when there was no one else north of $10 million. They got duped by the notion that the Ravens were going to pay Bell in that stratosphere. And my sense is that people in the organization were trying to tell McCagnan, you're, you're, you're the subject of a ruse here, but they still were determined to pay $13.5 million a year. This thing was doomed from the start. The offense was never good enough to get the most out of Bell, and they paid him too much money. And... Once it got out that Gase thought they paid him too much money, that poisoned the relationship by all appearances between Gase and Bell. And that's been the problem, Mike, is this is a bad offense and it's not a good team. And when you start looking at players on that team that that you would take to build a team around, there just aren't many of them. And Sam Darnold's not one of them either, which is why they face many, many problems. But this is just seems like a team that's been circling the drain for, for a long time and they may actually be flushed after this year because probably going to have a new head coach and I can already see the headline in the New York Post is probably going to repeat what Adam Gase just said. It, you know, didn't get the job done, didn't work out. I think were his exact words. So didn't work out because this probably isn't going to work out for him. They'll have a new coach, maybe even a new GM, who knows, but they've they're a long way off from being a good team. And you're right. You don't go sign a running back when you're a long way off. The one thing that doesn't get discussed nearly enough, and I don't understand why, the idea that Woody Johnson may be back sooner rather than later from his assignment as the U.S. ambassador to the U.K. He could tell everybody, go. He could tell his brother, get out of here. You made a mess of this. I'm taking over again, and we're going to see what we can do. And people think Joe Douglas is permanently safe. I don't get it. Because Douglas was Gase's handpicked guy. So if Douglas is golden, his opinion on Gase should be golden too. And Douglas isn't going to want Gase to go because Gase picked Douglas. And that's just a weird dynamic that doesn't get discussed enough either. So who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe Gase gets another chance to try to rebuild this thing. At some point, though, the fact that the Panthers are thriving as they rebuild makes it look horrible for the Jets to be as bad as they are. And again, four more games until the bye. And if they don't get a win in the next four weeks, I think it could be end of the road for Gase during the season. All right. Uh, Michael Thomas and the New Orleans Saints. The unexpected deactivation of Thomas for Monday night's game because of a fight with a teammate. Jeff Duncan and the Athletic had a great story that goes down the rabbit hole on the issues that the Saints have had with Michael Thomas. He's a very intense guy, and that intensity at times has caused him to be difficult, whether it's interactions with trainers, interactions with others on the team, just boorish behavior that reportedly required Sean Payton at some point to have a one-on-one with Michael Thomas during training camp. They thought they were past all of that. He gets into a fight with C.J. Gardner-Johnson, a safety on the team. They shut him down for Monday night's game. And there was always a weird vibe to this. Like, what did they really do? Why did they do it? He had the ankle problem. He was limited in practice all week, just like he was limited all week the week before, and he didn't play in the week four contest. What was really going on here? And there were multiple reports from people who cover the team that it was a one-game suspension for conduct detrimental to the club. And that was the centerpiece. That was the primary presumption from which everything Jeff Duncan wrote yesterday flowed. I got my hands on the letter. The Saints didn't suspend Michael Thomas, which is just bizarre. But, you know, if you suspend him, 
you pick a fight over nearly $28 million in remaining guaranteed money that by the language of his contract automatically would have voided if he would have been suspended for conduct detrimental to the team. He was fined the amount of a game check, not suspended. He was fined for conduct detrimental to the team because of the fight. But what it means is you're not going to have this collateral fight now with $28 million hanging in the balance. And you're not potentially going to lose Michael Thomas. You know, if you push a guy like Michael Thomas too far, Shereen, what happens? At some point he says, I want out. And I think that's the dance the Saints are trying to do. You have to get him under control. But if you push him too hard, we've seen other players in the NFL and in other sports. They decide they're done with a team, and you can't reel that back in. You can try all you want, but if that player is determined to get out, you're going to have to trade him. And I think that's why the Saints may be trying to walk this line of we're, we're, we're being tough with Thomas, but at the same time we're not being as tough as we're making everyone think we were being with Thomas. And it's funny, Mike, because he wasn't suspended, he was fine, but yet he didn't play in the game, and that had nothing to do with the injury. So basically – he was suspended without being suspended. And they are trying to walk that line. And they are trying to show toughness. He did need to be suspended, not play in the game, which he was. But at the same time, they're not taking his money away and trying to say, okay, now, you know, let you can be a good player on this team for us still. And like you said, not getting him to the point where he wants to go elsewhere. He has a difficult reputation uh, as was written about in the athletic story by by Duncan. And the the Saints are going to have to put up with that now for however much longer he plays, however much longer he's on their team. And they hope it's for a really long time because we saw last year what he can do. All-time record, 149 catches. And you've seen how much this year that Drew Brees misses those catches. They want him back. They want him back this week. And they want him to play and play well. Yeah, and surely he's frustrated by the injury. I, I get it. Uh, but at a certain point, if your behavior is unacceptable, they are going to take action. And this fine was the first shot across the bow at Thomas. And if he doesn't shape up, it's not going to be 58000 His base salary is only a million dollars, so it's not like it's a, a gigantic number. He had a restructuring of his contract in the offseason that dramatically shrunk the salary for this year. It would have been a huge hit. But it's just a million-dollar salary, $58,000 game check. And, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see if he learns from it and if they have to be more aggressive with him moving forward. Melvin Gordon, free agent acquisition of the Denver Broncos this offseason, cited for DUI on Tuesday night. There were reports he was out to dinner, had a little too much wine. He was also cited for speeding. Here's Vic Fangio, head coach of the Denver Broncos, on the Gordon arrest. And Melvin, what was your level of disappointment in hearing about that news, and, and why didn't he practice today? Well, I didn't want him to practice today until we get to the bottom of everything, you know, talk to the league, um, get all the facts in order before we make a decision on what we're going to do and uh, weigh the differences between what the manda mandated league punishment will be and anything we want to uh, do in addition to that. Um, yeah, I'm disappointed, but, you know, my own two kids have disappointed me at some points in their life, but I never stopped loving them anymore. And uh, he's one of us. We're going to love him. But uh, there'll be some consequences to this, to what happened last night. They got to walk a fine line there because under the CBA, only one punishment is available for each act of wrongdoing by a player. And this is the league's jurisdiction. It's now 
Uh, I think a two-game suspension for any type of a DUI, guilty plea, no contest plea, conviction, whatever the case may be. And they've been tougher on DUI than they used to be. I've, I've said all along it should be a one-year suspension because, you know, it's just dumb luck that separates a Melvin Gordon from a Dante Stallworth who killed a guy while driving drunk a decade or so ago. But uh, the, the consequence isn't quite that strong yet. It will come from the league, Shireen. And, you know, I mean, this is a reminder. In this day and age, when in doubt, we all have it right here. We all can hit the Uber button and a car shows up magically wherever we are. And you don't even have to pay for it. I mean, I know you pay for it, but it doesn't feel like you pay for it. And there's no excuse for anyone, for anyone to get themselves in a situation when they get behind the wheel of a car. There never really was. But nowadays, it's all been sealed off because unless you're so drunk, you can't even press the Uber app and do the, the two or three moves to get a car to show up where you are. There's no reason why you can't do it. And if you're that drunk, somebody should realize it and say, you're not going anywhere, pal. Well, Mike, and I would also think there's going to be an investigation on where he was. Where was he that he got so drunk? Was he at a bar? I mean, because there are certain things that are prohibited now for players. So if you're going to drink and get drunk, you should be home anyway if you're an NFL player. You should not be out driving around wherever he happened to be. Now, maybe he was at somebody's house or something like that. Who knows? But there are things that are prohibited that, that he shouldn't be doing. And so I'm sure there'll be an investigation in that, too, exactly where he was. Wednesday's football pod in America with Mike Tirico, Tony Dungy, Rodney Harris, and me is coming up later in the program. For now, though, we're going to take a break. And when we return, it's Wednesday mailbag time. We answer your best questions right here on PFTPM. We'll be right back. Wednesday edition of PFTPM, we answer some of your best questions. Before we get to that, though, Cam Newton off of the COVID-19 reserve list. He will be back at practice tomorrow. Thursday is the first practice that the Patriots will have had in nearly a week. They are already off their schedule because they play on Sunday against the Broncos. It should have been Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. They'll go more like the Packers schedule. Packers do, I think, Thursday, Friday and have the walkthrough on Saturday. They've got a somewhat different schedule than everyone else. So the uh, the Patriots are on whatever, whatever and however it compares to other schedules. That's what they're on. Cam comes back and he's been gone for a couple of weeks, Shireen, and we see if he can get ready to play. 13 days it'll be tomorrow, Mike, since he tested positive, so he's been asymptomatic by everyone says. Uh, so he'll come back. They need him. He's a 2-1 and one since he uh, became the Patriots starter, and they really missed him as that, in that Chiefs game, as we saw. So uh, I know they're excited to have Cam back, and they're fortunate that he only had to miss one game, as it turned out, with all the games moved around. All right, Dr. J144 has an important question out of the mailbag today. Are we seeing now what Tennessee quarterback Ryan Tannehill would have been all along with good coaching and a good running game? Mobile, smart, accurate. Joe Philbin and Adam Gase haven't done anything noteworthy since they had him, to be honest. Well, look, here's the reality. Ryan Tannehill was a receiver at Texas A&M, converted to quarterback for one year, was drafted eighth overall, maybe drafted higher than he should have been, that year, but he still was drafted on potential. The problem is some takes, sometimes it takes a guy a while to get to his potential. And he was there in 2016 in his fifth season. Now, again, most guys don't get five seasons to figure it out, but Tannehill was there. 
He takes a low hit from Calais Campbell in December of that year during a playoff run, and the Dolphins would still make the playoffs with Matt Moore coming in as the backup. They chose not to have the knee reconstructed. It was a partially torn ACL, among other injuries, for Tannehill. So they rolled the dice. They went forward, and non-contact torn ACL for him in training camp very early in 2017, and that kind of ended things for him. He still had one more year with the Titans after that, but it just it just didn't work. And or with the Dolphins, excuse me. Dolphins. And and it was so it was so bad that the Dolphins had to pay part of his salary in 2019 in order to get any trade value for him when they sent him to the Titans. So, you know, look, is it coaching? Is it he's finally figured out how to play? He's carrying himself differently. He's got a confidence and a swagger he's never had. You know, some guys, Shireen, it just takes time. And the problem is in today's NFL, you don't get that time typically. You either become a star you wash out of the game, or you're just this perennial backup who's in the churn who never gets the chance to have the light come on. Tannehill got that chance last year to have the light come on, and it did, and now it's burning brighter than ever. There were so many injuries for him in Miami, and you talked about a lot of those, Mike, but he just never was consistently in the lineup and was in and out and hurt, and that offensive line, as we know, was absolutely awful. Probably one of the worst offensive lines in history for a couple of those years. I mean, he just got beat up again and again and again, and that's tough, and that's especially tough on a young quarterback, and you take those hits repeatedly, and and I think it something happens to you, and it's not positive. So it was time for him to go somewhere else, but I think it does show that players, especially quarterbacks, can have to be with the at the right place at the right time with the right coach. And I think you see that with Kyler Murray, right place, right time, right coach, Cliff Kingsbury. I'm convinced that if Vince Young had gone somewhere else besides Tennessee to a coach who didn't want him, he could have been a huge success in the NFL, but he didn't. And he really didn't get much of that second chance. I know he went to Philadelphia, but but it wasn't really a good second chance like Ryan Tannehill's getting. So it does show you that Players sometimes need a lot of time to develop. They need to get in the right place. They need to get in the right system, and he's done that. I'm I'm extremely happy for Ryan and what's happened with him. Obviously, I'm I'm an Aggie, so I you know I saw him play every college game he ever played, and he was he was a good player at A and M, and he's showing he's a good NFL player too. Even though there still aren't enough good quarterbacks to go around, once you wash out, it's harder to justify plugging you in somewhere else because. What teams are going to say, here's our answer, a guy who had six years in Miami and it never worked for him. Let's make him our guy. And actually, it was seven years in Miami. Let's make him our guy if our starter fails. And it almost has to be a situation like that where you have a starter that you still believe in. And Marcus Mariota was making $20 million plus last year in the final year of his, of his five-year contract as the second overall pick in the draft. It didn't work out. We have this guy ready. All right, let's see what he can do. Holy crap, he can be pretty good. And they just kind of locked into it. They fell into it because they weren't, you know, if, if they were done with Mariota after the 2018 season, they're going to get somebody other than Ryan Tannehill to be the starter. Ryan Tannehill's not the guy when you flush Marcus Mariota, you say, here's, hey fans, please renew your season tickets. Here's our replacement for Marcus Mariota and trust us, he'll be good. You got to do something better than that. So you almost need, if you're a quarterback that has failed in your first stop in the NFL, you need to find a place where you can slide in behind a guy who's teetering and you just bide your time. And if you get a chance 
That's it. And, and you know what? Oh, by the way, you got to make the most of it. And he did. So it worked out perfectly for him, but that is a tough needle to thread. And I got a ton of respect for Ryan Tannehill for making the most of his second opportunity. I remember asking him last year, once it was starting to click, he basically said, look, I, I, I figured I was done. I figured it was it. So I'm just treating everything like it's gravy, like it's a bonus. And he did that, you know, into a four-year contract that pays out more than Patrick Mahomes is going to make over the next four years. All right. CZ Wald, did Le'Veon Bell overplay his hand by sitting out and ultimately make a poor financial decision? Your thoughts, Shireen? Well, you're you're the better contract guy, Mike, than, than I am, so I'll let you address the specifics of really the contract. But I'll say this. If, if I'm a player and I, I've sat out a year, I just think with running backs, it's hard to sit out a year and come back and play and be the same guy, and he hasn't been the same guy. Whether it was a wrong fit in New York or whatever, whether he made the wrong choice, whatever it's been, I don't know. But when you go back and look at it, it's been a long time since he was really a top back in this league, and they did pay him a lot of money to be a top back again in this league and it didn't work out so he'll get a chance like Ryan Tannehill took advantage of his next chance Le'Veon Bell will get another chance probably to go somewhere else and and prove that he is what he was a few years ago in Pittsburgh but he's getting up there in age now so he's at the end of his 20s and closing in on 30 and that's not a good place to be as a running back. Yeah, Shereen, I think the problem is everything about the system is stacked against running backs. And when you do get to the point where it's time to do the franchise tag dance, the problem is, you know, look, the, the, the franchise tag has been going down. And if you do withhold services, if you do sit out, it makes it harder to have a big year and lay the foundation for the next year. It's so much easier as a quarterback to play the franchise tag game. As a running back, here's what you have to do. After three years, you have to take your stand. You can't say, I'm going to go ahead and finish my fourth season. I'm going to have a contract year. And if they franchise tag me, we'll work something out. No, you don't even want to get to that franchise tag point. You want to do what Dalvin Cook, Alvin Kamara, Christian McCaffrey, the other running backs that got their deal after three seasons. That's the key, Shireen. And and that's, that's the message to every running back out there. Draw the line in the sand and get your contract after three years. Otherwise, that system is going to betray you when it's time to become a free agent or a franchise tag player. Did he do the wrong thing, Mike, financially in sitting out? Did that cost him money? Well, he made $27 million fully guaranteed by signing the two-year deal with the Jets after sitting out. If he had signed the contract, the franchise tender, at about, what was it, $14 million, something along those lines with the Steelers in 2018, yeah. you suffer a serious injury then, you're $13 million short. So we'll never know the alternate universe. But he got $27 million. And uh, that's not bad for a running back. I think we're out of time. Are we out of time? I don't hear the count. We are out of time. Well, we're not. Out of, we're out of time for this segment. Football Pod in America. When PFTPM continues right after this. All right. Happy midweek. Glad to get the football night guys all together. Florio and I, business casual. Tony and Rodney look like they're heading to the first tee. And we're jealous. You guys look a heck of a lot more comfortable than we are. Well, so we we sit down and record this on Wednesday. So for the first time, I don't know, since we've been doing this, we can talk about a game that happened last night in a Tuesday night football game at a nice early starting time, too. It's nice to watch a football game at 7 o'clock and it was done by 10. Uh, so, Rodney, I'm going to start with you because I was thinking, man, Tennessee, this is so tough. Only one practice and all that. And Buffalo looked like the team that was kept from practicing for a couple of weeks. How surprised were you at what Tennessee did on Tuesday night? Uh, 
Mike, we talked before the show. I wasn't really that surprised with um, Tennessee because this is a smart football team. Mike Vrabel was a smart player when I played with him. And this team actually reminds me of some of the teams that I played on. Um, smart, physical team, plays well under pressure. Um, and anytime you have an opportunity to run the football and play good defense like they did last night, you're going to have a chance to win. And I really think this is going to be what we're going to see going forward. You're going to see some teams who adapt and adjust and have a no excuses, no explanation mentality. And you're going to have teams that uh, do get caught up in schedule changes and whatever. And I think as a coach, that's what you got to get across to your players. Hey, I don't care when they say we're going to play. I don't care how many times the facility gets shut down, how many different things we go through. Our job is to go out there and play well whenever that is. And I think you're going to see some teams that have that mentality, and, and Tennessee Mike, certainly before, did. Yeah, Mike, before you jump in, Tony, it felt like Tennessee was, and Rodney and I were talking about this before we started recording, this is who we are, this is what we do, and we're just going to be able to pick up where we left off because we don't reinvent the wheel every week. We, it, we have a true identity, and we just play to it. And it felt like that's what I was watching on Tuesday night. Absolutely. And it, kind of took me back to my old days and growing up and pick up basketball. Hey, you want to play? Let, let's go. Let's go down the playground. <laughs> let's go right now. And you bring your A game whenever that is. And the guys from the east side come over. Hey, we want to play you. Let's go. And, and that's the mentality I thought Tennessee had. Were, were you more point guard or a shooter? I wasn't a shooter. <laughs> okay. You're, you're distributed. I just, want, I just want to be clear about that. Go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. <laughs> How many times do we hear coaches and players say they don't hear anything from outside the building? We pay no attention to the outside noise. And yet again, it's proven to be baloney. They listen to everything, and they look for anything that they can use to motivate themselves, including – all these people are saying bad things about us for how we did or didn't comply with the COVID-19 protocols. And everybody's talking down to us and saying that we're negligent and saying that we did this. And they use that as motivation. It just shows they'll use anything they can and credit to Mike Vrabel for getting the guys extra stirred up because people were questioning <laughs> their compliance with protocols of all things. It's, it's just great because it shows that at the core, they're all human. They get motivated by anything they can and it can lead to good results on the football field if it works. Rodney, were you ever motivated by the media? <laughs> um, I think Mike Florio hit it right spot on. Yeah, you hear everything in, inside and outside the building. And it's definitely something um, to motivate you because when everybody's saying that, hey, you did this wrong or you did that wrong, um, yeah, it brings you together as a team. But I was really impressed with some of the guys like Khalif Raymond, who's been playing really well for him. Um, John o. Smith is a guy that I've been clamoring for to get the ball more the last couple years. He's, a, he's an exciting guy. He can play tight end. He can play running back. He can play a multitude of uh, positions. But I just like what Vrabel's done. He's been very consistent. He's the leader. He respects his players. He, tre he treats them like men. And defensively, I think they're really, really underrated. Before we drop this, Mike, I'm going to take your point to Tony here for a second. Tony, what, what was the best uh, use of what they're saying about us that you brought to motivation for your team? You know, I, I wasn't a big uh, billboard guy or bulletin board material, but I did talk to our team a lot when they would say, we can't win the big one, you guys choke in the playoffs, that kind of thing, and just really talked about 
it doesn't matter. If we do what we're supposed to do and play ball, we're going to win. Uh, people don't think you can do it. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It only matters what we do in this room. Well, Mike, I can say Mike, this. Uh, we used uh, a lot of uh, uh, Tariko. <laughs> I can say this. We used um, Coach Dungy and Peyton Manning in that offense as uh, a lot of bulletin board material. Trust me, over the years, we would always put up there. There's, these guys are averaging thirty some points. No one can stop them. Look what they did to Denver in the playoffs. You remember that, Coach? You guys, man, you I guys were so well. tough. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it well. True stories hey, of the locker room. One more thing about yeah. last night's game. Um, at a time when we are seeing quarterbacks come into the league and right away they get it, and it causes the quarterbacks who don't get it right away to fall out of favor and disappear, Ryan Tannehill, good Lord, after all these years of mediocrity and injury and he's no good. And remember, he came into the NFL after playing receiver at Texas A&M. He was a quarterback for one year, and now he's one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. And there's something different about him. He carries himself differently. He's got a confidence. He's got a swagger. And I think people are finally waking up to the idea that this guy's pretty darn good. He's got one of the best offensive lines. Go ahead, go ahead, Coach. We, we had Nick Foles a couple of weeks ago uh, against Tom Brady. And Nick Foles was saying, you know, when I – Finally got to Philadelphia. Frank Reich figured out what I did well, and that's what we we focused on, and that made my career. And I think you've got Mike Vrabel, as Rodney said, just saying, here's what this guy does well, and this is what we're going to do. And uh, he has blossomed, and, and everybody has confidence in him in that Tennessee organization right now, and it's great to see. Yeah, and offensively, you're talking about when you can turn around and hand the ball off to a 250-pound running back and you have deep threats like an A.J. Brown and you have these other guys stepping up, making contributions. And this is the most complete team that he's been on. So, yeah, I mean, of course he's playing with confidence. He feels comfortable. Hey, if he's off a little bit, we can hand the ball off. But if he's not off, we can hand the ball off. We can use play action, take shots down the field. You know the Tennessee Titans always have good special teams. So this is the most complete team that Ryan Tannehill has really, I think, he's ever played on. And I'm sure right. one thing good. regarding Derrick yeah. Henry. There's no way Rodney Harrison in his prime gets smacked <laughs> down the way that Josh Norman did last night. I'd have loved to have seen that collision at some point. Well, I, I tell you this, Mike Florio, I, I just felt bad because Josh, he's had an unbelievable career, but to get embarrassed as you've gotten older, <laughs> to get pushed down like that, and that's something that we're going to see the next 20 years with, um, you know, with the replays and everything. But yeah, just go at his knees. I mean, if you're trying to tackle a guy bigger than you, and I tell my both my boys the same thing, go at their knees. Everybody, all these running backs, nobody wants to get hit at, at their knees. Go at their knees, wrap up, and hold on for dear life. Mike, that wouldn't have happened to Rodney today. Forget 12 years ago. He would not have gone down like that. I promise you that. <laughs> See, a little skinnier, but that's about it's darn it. Darn right. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, Mike, I'm going to start with you because I know where Tony's going to go with this, and then I'll have Tony and Rodney follow. Analytics in football. People are going for it on fourth down more than ever. And it really has seen the analytics impact on decisions take over most of the teams in the NFL. What do you hear from GMs, team presidents, ownership, as guys are making more of the analytics uh, additions into their front office staff? And that voice is getting louder in a lot of these decision-making rooms. You know, it's funny. Mike Zimmer said in the aftermath of the game on Sunday night where he went for it on fourth and short, mm -hmm. he doesn't have an analytic 
analytics guy talking to him in that moment. Well, some coaches do. John Harbaugh does. I mean, these folks have an equal seat at the table when it comes to strategizing and understanding those elements. And, you know, we keep coming back to the fact that it has its place. The best coaches are going to include that information with everything else that gets put in the blender, and then you have to make a decision based on who your opponent is, what the weather is, where you're playing, are there fans present, are there no fans present, and every other factor. So it's part of it, and it's accepted as part of it. I think sometimes maybe it's too big of a part of it, but it clearly is one of the, one of the factors driving these big decisions that are being made every week. And I, I respect Mike Zimmer for what he said. And, and to me, if you made a decision on gut feel and you just said, hey, I really don't want to give Russell Wilson the ball back. I don't care. I'll take my chances going forward on fourth down. Great. Don't do it, though, just because the book says to do it, because the book doesn't know who's playing defense on the other side. The book doesn't know where your team is uh, mentally, physically, anything. Just, hey, fourth and one with, with three minutes to go, you're going to win 80% of the time if you go for it makes no sense to me. You know what's going on in that game. You've got to coach the team. And yes, I agree with you, Mike. Use analytics, but it can't be the end-all, be-all. Rodney, before you jump in, it's interesting, interesting, Rods, because analytics is now putting in more of those factors than ever before. Who you're playing, what's going on, but it still comes down to the coaches knowing my team isn't playing to the analytics that were put in. My guys are tired. Is the analytics factoring in that my right tackle is hampered in some way that we can't run the base play that we know is the right thing against this look if we get it in this situation? So analytics is putting in everything possible now and getting to levels that some fans don't really understand because we don't hear about them. Everybody's very secretive about their analytics input, but it still comes down to that decision you can't replace the heart. You can't replace the mind. You can't replace what the coach is seeing on the sideline. So it does need to be balanced, like you said. I'm sorry, Rods. Coach, coach, and, I mean, you've been around your players. And to me, it, this is a decision based on the coach and the, the head coach and the coaching staff. Like, what do you feel with your players? Are you, are, do you feel like your offense is playing well? Do you think your defense is struggling? Um, do you feel like they have a lot of confidence? I mean, all these factors. To me, an analytical department should be the head coach and along with the assistant head coach. Why can't we all get together, huddle, and figure out what's best for the team? You, do you need some type of survey? No, because it doesn't take in consideration how people feel. Players have feelings. Players are sometimes playing with a lot of energy. Sometimes they're not playing with a lot of energy. So I think it's up to the head coach to feel. Uh, Mike Zimmer, you, you you just in that situation, I did have a problem because now you you go up by eight, you you kick the ball out to Russell, he has to go 80 yards possibly and score and get the two point conversion. At least give yourself a chance. I know a lot of head coaches come in there and say, "Well, we're one and three, um, you know, we're on the road, we should take this chance." No, you go for the, no, you go and you get up a, a touchdown. You force them to go 80 yards down the field, convert on the two point conversion. I see you shaking your head, coach. I just totally disagree with that. Your players have played too hard and they sacrificed too much to get to this point. You can't throw it all out the window on one play. No, I, I agree with you. Let me just finish this up on analytics. 1997, uh, we're, I'm coaching the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We have a chance to draft a 5'8", 170-pound running back, and all the analytics said he can't be a feature back. But we took Warwick Dunn, and he became the rookie of the year. 
Years later, I'm at Indianapolis, and we've got the 11th pick in the draft, and we took a 5'11 defensive end named Dwight Freeney. And all the analytics said, too small to take. He can't be a factor in the NFL. Analytics don't have all the answers. Thank you. Amen. Well said. Hey, Mike, I just want to make one last point on this. Because owners come out of the business world for the most part, do you think that their comfort has uh, forced coaches to be more involved in the analytics part? Because spreadsheets and facts and data, that is how a lot of these owners made their money. It's how a lot of businesses have grown successfully. Do you think that in any way has helped this wave of analytics that has really taken over every sports, every sports franchise in the country? is hiring analytics folks. Uh, at my alma mater, Syracuse, we're, we're turning out kids who are majoring in sports analysis and sports analytics, and their departments are cropping up at universities all over the country. We're creating this industry. I just feel like ownership feels comfortable with it because it sings more to the tune that they've been singing for a long time. Well, and you have to justify the expenditure in the analytics department by using the product of the analytics work. And now this gives the coach the safe harbor. The safe harbor used to be I did the conventional thing, not the unconventional thing. So don't mm. be mad at me and ultimately don't fire me. Now the coach says, I did the thing that your analytics department told me to do. Don't blame me if it didn't work. <laughs> There's always someone, always someone who has to pay for it at the end of the day. Rodney, I'm going to start with you. A couple of games. Let's hit a few, guys. Browns-Steelers this week. It's really nice that it's October up here in the Midwest. It's starting to feel a little bit cool. And the Browns and the Steelers has me excited to watch football on Sunday. What are your initial thoughts on that game? Well, just looking at Pittsburgh and looking at Big Ben, and they're not asking Big Ben to drop back and just try to do everything by himself. They're doing a good job of getting the ball out of his hands quickly. They have so many young, talented guys. All he has to do is get the ball to his playmakers, and, and they're doing what they do. I, I love this um, Clay, um, Chase Claypool. He's very versatile. You can put him in the slot. He's a bigger wide receiver. He can do so many different things. You can hand him the ball off, and he's a problem against linebackers in that slot. I, I, I like what the Pittsburgh Steelers are doing on the defensive side. I, I would, you know, wish that um, uh, Minka Fitzpatrick, their free safety, no sacks, no interceptions, and Joe Hayden, they have to play a little bit better in the secondary and try to create more turnovers. But I like what the Pittsburgh Steelers are doing, especially with Big Ben. I like what Cleveland's doing, and you and I kind of had a debate the other night. Uh, <laughs> do we believe in Cleveland? I talked to Kevin Stefanski via text uh, a couple times after the games, and he's telling me, boy, you wouldn't believe we got 31 knockdowns on offense. They keep track of how many guys they knock off their feet. And this is a different mentality than Cleveland's ever had. And it's not just, hey, Baker Mayfield's going to go back and throw all these balls to our great wide receivers. No, they're a complete offense, and they're playing with confidence. I think it's going to be a great game. I'm looking forward to it. And Coach, Tony, I think one big Stefanski. Go ahead. Good. Rodney first. Go ahead, Florio. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Florio. All I was going to say is this. It's meeting 137 between the two teams. The Steelers are up 74-59 with one tie from a couple of years ago. It feels more lopsided than that over the years because the Browns have been mm -hmm. so bad. I think on paper the Browns are better than Pittsburgh right now. The Steelers' four wins have not come against great teams, and all four games have been close. The Browns have been more impressive, and it's it's like you have to rewire your brain to think of it that way because it's always been this vibe that the Steelers are superior. Steelers may be in for a surprise on Sunday. 
We'll, all I say, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. And and that and probably that, that's my biggest question about Cleveland, Coach. If they can't run the ball, do you trust Baker Mayfield can take him up and down the field like he's tried to do in the past without the running game? Well, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll go back to what my old coach used to say, Coach Noel. If you can run the ball, which Cleveland can do, and you can rush the passer, you can win a lot of games. So they've got some elements that will help them. Now, what happens if their run game gets shut down? Uh, that remains to be seen. But I, I like where <laughs> Cleveland is right now. Okay. I want to do more conversation on Stefanski with you down the line because I think it's fascinating, Tony, the way he's come in there, managed some big personalities and big expectations, and really has them in a position to have – True impact games here in October and on into November. Uh, another game, the Packers are playing the Bucks. So, Mike, uh, when we start to see the whole impact of Tom Brady in Tampa, I, I think we're starting to see it now in the games. He's played Breeze. Now he plays Rodgers. He'll play Breeze again here in a few weeks. It's kind of setting the stage for some of those big marquee quarterback matchups that we're not going to get many more of considering the age of these guys. Yeah, absolutely. We've got so many great young quarterbacks and old quarterbacks and the old quarterbacks who knows how much time they have left. But Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady used to be once every four years. They're in the same conference now. We get to see them in the in the regular season. We may see them in the postseason. But all of a sudden, this is a huge game for the Buccaneers after what happened in Chicago. That's a game they should have won. Up 13 nothing. had the chance to drive the ball late. Tom Brady makes the mental mistake. He's going to be extra driven. The question is, is he at the point in his career where the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak? And we're going to see that, I think, potentially when the Packers start coming after him with Zadarius Smith. You know, he was he was vulnerable to the outside rush. We usually see Tom Brady have a rough night when they're coming at him straight up the middle. We rarely see him unable to avoid the guys who are curling around on the outside because he can always step up and step away. But Khalil Mack gave him fits, and if they can rush him consistently from the outside, they're going to have a problem against the Packers. You're right, Mike. This is a big game. I, I live down here in Tampa, and when Tom came, uh, the thought is Super Bowl. Nobody's expecting Tampa to be a 500 team, and if they don't beat Green Bay, they're going to be 3-3. Three and three. And so... Um, everyone is looking at this game, and it is going to come down to the quarterbacks. Green Bay's got a diverse offense. Tampa crowds the line of scrimmage. They're not going to let Aaron Jones run. They've stopped everybody running the football this year. Aaron Rodgers is going to have to be spectacular to win. So Tom Brady is going to have to outplay Aaron Rodgers, in my opinion, if Tampa's going to win this game. And it, it, you're talking about fireworks. I think there's going to be a lot of balls in the air. Yeah, it comes down to um, pass pressure, especially from the Packers' standpoint. They haven't gotten great pressure this year. At least they haven't put up big sack numbers. Um, Zadarius Smith, he's getting around a quarterback, but Preston Smith, he struggled a little bit. And this defense, to me, I like this defense. I don't know where they're at as far as, you know, where they rank, but I think they have a lot of talented guys. They scored a few times uh, on the defensive side of the football. I still like their pass rushers. I think – with this offense and this offense really taking off, this defense is about to catch up and the Packers are going to go on a really good run. Coach, I got to ask you this question. Everybody's making a big deal about Tom Brady yelling and screaming at his teammates. We've known Tom for a long time. You can't make a big deal out of that, right? It's just his leadership and him trying to motivate guys. Are they making a big issue down there in Tampa with Tom? No, they aren't. Here, uh, Bruce Arians, everybody's saying, that's why we got Tom Brady. That's what we want. We want him to lift everybody else's um, play. And so they're excited about it. And I can tell you this, 
Peyton Manning has yelled at a lot of people. Maybe not, not, he didn't get caught on camera like Tom Brady. But, uh, hey, those, those great quarterbacks, you don't think they, they get on people? Uh, it's part, it goes with the territory. I think there's a commercial for the Microsoft Surface with Tom Brady throwing it with the number of times he flips it away and then it comes back, it takes a licking and keep on tick, keeps on ticking like the old Timex watches. That's pretty funny. Hey, Rodney, the, the funny thing was with Brady and the whole four downs deal, right? We saw Chase Claypool tweet out the four with the four touchdowns. We saw Brady tweet out congratulations to LeBron with the four for the fourth championship. What you may not have seen, Rods, on Saturday night, I lost track of the downs in the Notre Dame-Florida State game. I said it was third down. Right away, my partner right next to me, there to be, no, no, it's second down. So I had a Tom Brady moment, and, and Tony called me out on it. That's no, what no, happens not when called you get you older, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't call you out, Mike. I was there to help you out, and that's what Tom that's Brady it, should it. have had in his headset, oh, right? Should have had his offensive coordinator telling him, hey, we need this play, it's fourth down, buddy. But here's the thing, Mike, you owned up to it. Tom Brady didn't, right? (laughs) And that's what bothered me about what happened last week. Tom Brady refused to own up to it. And Bruce Arians, you know, after calling him out following week one, and there was the brouhaha in the aftermath of, oh, how dare you call out Tom Brady? Arians defended him. And it just makes me wonder. It makes me wonder what the real reaction from Tom Brady to being called out by Bruce Arians after week one was because Arians wasn't going there at all after everyone knew Tom Brady lost track of the downs. Ah. Yeah, and that's that's something Florio that I looked at, fine. Mike. You always fine. Florio, that's, Go ahead. Florio, that's something that I looked at, too, and I was like, why don't Tom just admit that, like, admit it? You know what I'm saying? What's the big deal? There's so much stuff going on as a quarterback. People would understand because you have to keep track of so many different things going on. You got – so many different elements moving and stuff like that. And if, if I'm Tom, I just say, you know what? I'm, I had a brain fart. I just I, I totally forgot what the play was, and I'll do better next week. And I think the locker room would receive it a little bit better if you can own up as a leader of that locker room to the mistake that you made. That's a great point. All right, one last one, guys. Just two sentences here from each of you. San Francisco against the Rams. Tony, I'll let you go first. Our Sunday night game on NBC. Rams are going to put a lot of pressure on whoever the quarterback is. If the Rams can stop the run, it's going to be a long day for San Francisco. If I'm the 49ers, I've got to get my running game going. Right. Me, the Rams, the commitment to the run, um, and they have to do a better job in the secondary, at, in particular at the linebacker position in the secondary, making open field tackles. But I like, what, I like what the Rams are doing offensively, a lot of commitment to the run. But also Robert Woods, he's their best offensive player. The Rams are the unofficial NFC East champions. They've only beaten teams from the (laughs) NFC East, the worst division in football. We're going to find out how good the Rams are, and we may find out how bad the 49ers are, especially at the quarterback position. That's the biggest one to me, guys. Uh, You know, we've seen C.J. Beathard come in here a couple of times. Garoppolo wasn't ready. They said that, but was it the fact that he wasn't ready, wasn't mobile at the ankle? Is he struggling? What does Kyle Shanahan do? And in a division where I know the Rams are the champs of the East, but at least they are 4-1, and one, and we saw Seattle's resiliency is there. They're in the middle of one of those great Seattle-type runs. You can't let too many lengths get between you and the top of the NFC West. Really important for San Francisco to figure out their quarterback situation. We'll talk about this on football night at 7 Eastern on Sunday night and come over when the Sunday games are done for all the highlights, and then we'll have the 49ers and the Rams. Gentlemen, be safe, be good. Can't wait to connect on Sunday.